Jeremiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read these verses and then we're going to pray and then get right into our study. At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven which they have loved and which they have served and after which they have walked, which they have sought and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. And then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, saith the Lord of hosts. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit, the anointing and outpouring of your Spirit this evening for wisdom and understanding. Lord, that you would help us to rightly divide your word this evening, to rightly understand it, to gain, Lord, uh, a spiritual understanding and a spiritual wisdom, Lord, that goes beyond just the historical aspects of this passage. We pray, Father, that you will help us in understanding that even in this type of prophetic passage, that there is an encouragement to be a doer of your word, and not just one who hears or one who knows, but those who understand and will live out your word in the love and mercy and grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our study of Jeremiah's temple sermon. Now, that began last time, actually, a couple of weeks ago. We began chapter 7, and uh, this was his third prophetic message to Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Judah and Jerusalem, of course, being the southern kingdom of uh, a divided Israel. And uh, when Jeremiah was presenting this particular prophecy, he was doing so at the gate of the temple. Now God has sent Jeremiah as the prophet for Judah and Jerusalem to awaken, awaken them to the coming judgment because of what they had been doing as far as their worshiping of idols, their re refusal to obey the Lord and the things that the Lord had given them to, to do in His name. And so... Uh, this is the awakening. He's standing at the gates of the temple. Now remember that the people are coming into the temple. Uh, they're believing that everything is okay with them to worship on, on high places and then come to the temple when it's time to worship in the temple. So they're kind of embracing all kinds of, of religions and all kinds of practices. And many of those practices, of course, were very abhorrent practices as far as the pagan religions around Israel were concerned. And time and again, you know, even going all the way back in the history of Israel coming out of Egypt, God made it very clear, do not go after the gods of the other nations. I am your God, I'm one God. And so the sermon itself that we began looking at a couple of weeks ago extends from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 10. At least the understanding of this whole sermon. Now, part of that sermon really kind of comes to an end at the end of chapter 8, but uh, uh, 
the prophecy itself continues on. And uh, it focuses, what it focuses on is God's judgment and God's punishment, which was coming upon the people, his own people, due to their false religious practices, due to their worship of idols, due to their stubborn rebelliousness in continuing Jewish temple services and practices, and believing that nothing was wrong in their actions. Now, sadly, the Lord points out to them that their worship does them no good. Now, these were the points that we saw from the beginning of chapter 7 through the end of chapter 7. First of all, their worship was doing them no good. They were coming and offering sacrifices in the temple, but at the same time, throughout the week, they were offering sacrifices to other gods. God says, I'm I'm one God, I alone am to be worshipped. Uh, Their prayers and even the prophet Jeremiah's prayers for them would be of no value. He will not hear those prayers. Their sacrifices will do them no good. And even God's discipline and chastisement, what was going to come upon them was not going to do them any good. And all of this because of their stubbornness and their refusal to obey the Lord. Now, go back to chapter 7 for just a moment as a point of review to look at what he says to them. In Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 25 to 28. And again, this is the message that is coming from God through the, uh, the prophet uh, Jeremiah. You have to forgive me, I, I kind of looked right straight down the aisle and there's a ladder right there. And I thought, well that's uh, pretty cool. <laughs> Alright, it just, it just caught me. <laughs> uh, Jeremiah seven twenty-five. The prophet Jeremiah speaking on behalf of God to his people. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets. In other words, God had sent them warnings. God had sent them people to say, look to God, believe in God, trust in God, obey God, do what He says, because it is going to be to your good and to the good of your children. We've been studying that on Sunday mornings as we've been going through the parenting issues. And then He says... Daily, In other words, he was sending them even daily, rising up early and sending them. And notice verse 26, yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And of course, the stiffening of the neck is, is referring to the, you know, to the stubbornness, to the, uh, the, the backsliding uh, aspect of the people. Because again, the stiffness of the neck was, was, uh, was reminiscent of, of the animal, uh, the, the donkey itself that would uh, actually be pulled to go in one direction. And he went back. So the stiffening of the neck. And here God is wanting them to come with him, and, and they're refusing to go with their God. So they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. And it says they did worse than their fathers. And therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. So you shall say to them, This is a nation that does not obey the voice of the Lord their God, nor receive correction. Truth has perished and has been cut off from their mouth. Now, we saw that last time. We said, man, this is a very sad passage where truth perishes in a nation because they refuse to believe in the truth that God has given them about himself. It's a nation that does not obey. And and we also pointed out the fact that here was a prophet that was already being told by God, listen, you're going to go out there and they're not going to listen to you. How would you like to be a prophet that is told, listen, I want you to go out there and tell these people these things, but they're not going to listen to you. And you say, is there anybody else whose resume you might have? 
that you like to sin, because that seems to be a little bit self-defeating here if I say, okay. <laughs> but that's what happened. But Jeremiah was one who believed in God and trusted God and realized that he needed to obey God himself. So Jeremiah would then warn them here that all types of mirth, all types of joy, including even wedding festivities, when it talks about there would be no joy with the bridegroom and the, and, and the bride and, and all of that. In that same passage in chapter 7. It would all disappear in Jerusalem and even in the smaller, uh, smaller town surrounding. So devastation and barrenness would actually characterize the land. Uh, and I haven't mentioned, and I need to remind you of this, but what was coming? What have we been seeing that was happening? We were out about 40 years from what was going to happen. It's a lot closer now with this particular sermon. Well, the Babylonians were coming. The Babylonians were coming. They had already become a greater nation because they had defeated the Assyrians. And now they were coming from the east, and actually from the east and then from the north, down into Israel. And especially down toward Judah and Jerusalem. So this is what he's warning them about. This great army is going to come. And God is going to use them to judge you for your disobedience. So devastation and barrenness would characterize the land. Nothing was presented by the prophet for which the people might be optimistic. Now you know, for the most part, we like to try to be optimistic about life and about things that go on. We like to say that, uh, you know, the glass is actually half full and not half empty. But in this particular case, the glass was just empty, period, when it came to Israel, and in particular, Judah, the southern kingdom. Because Israel had already been judged for their disobedience to God and were in captivity and had been in captivity years before uh, in Assyria. And so we continue on then in the prophecy that predicts the final humiliation of the people for their blatant and obvious insubordination and their defiance of the Lord's commands. The sentence is given for the nation's great apostasy. The deaths of many would symbolize the failure of Judah and Jerusalem's gods to save them. You'll see this as you look at verses 2 and 3. So look at one, uh, let's look at the same passage that I read to you earlier. At that time, says the Lord, verses 1 through 3, They shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of its princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves, they shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the hosts of heaven. By the way, those are some of the gods that they worshipped. And so you see how that is being stated. They shall spread them before the sun, the moon, and all the hosts of heaven, which they have loved, which they have served, and after which they have walked, which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. What is refuse? Well, in this particular case, it's garbage. And then death shall be chosen rather than life. By all the residue of those who remain of this evil family, who remain in all the places where I have driven them, says the Lord. Now, to the Jewish mindset, desecrating a person's grave and exposing their bones to the elements were, were among the, the worst insults anybody could heap upon the deceased and upon the family. And in this particular case, you'll notice that it begins with kings and princes and priests and prophets. And so you're talking about those who were, were given high positions in, in Israel. 
And Jeremiah is speaking, what he's speaking of here is of the Babylonians who are going to come and desecrate the graves of the dead in Judah. Because this was their practice. Their practice was not only to defile the dead, but to remove anything of value from the graves. And then the bones of the dead, in particular the kings and the leaders of of Israel, both uh, civil and religious, they would be spread out before the gods that they have loved had loved and they worshipped the sun, the moon, and the stars. The bodies of the dead would be allowed to lie like garbage scattered on the ground. We spoke last time of Gehenna because of Tophet and because of the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was at the south end of Jerusalem and, and there in that particular valley was their refuse heap. That was their garbage dump. And it was a dump that had continual fire going at all times. And so this became the picture for them of what hell was going to be like. A continual fire of burning of all of the refuse and the garbage of the city. But now we see that Gehenna would become again a garbage dump. But this time the corpses of the citizens of Jerusalem would be the garbage. It's an interesting thing if you ever look at some of the images that were captured by the Nazis themselves back in the late 30s uh, during the time of the Holocaust. The images that they themselves captured of the bodies of the Jews that they moved around uh, with land movers and land, you know, just like if it was just dirt. And it it just brings a heaviness to your heart when you consider how they they perceive them to be. Which reminds me, I've got to mention this, you know, it's it's not like I I know what this is all about uh, coming yet, but there's a a movie coming out by, uh, I believe believe it's Miramax, that is doing a movie called The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And... uh, I just happened to catch it on the, on the internet looking at one website. And uh, it's about two young boys, a German boy whose father is a Nazi commandant and a, and a Jewish boy inside a camp. And they become friends across the barbed wire. Interesting story. And uh, quite touching just even looking at the trailers. Uh, if you have any questions about it, you can ask me. I'll, I'll let you know where you can see it on the internet. But anyway, this this just brought a lot of pictures to mind when I started thinking about how the Babylonians treated the the bodies of of the Jewish people. I mean, it it wasn't a pretty picture at all that Jeremiah was painting. And remember this, he was painting this picture as the people were going into the temple. You see, he's trying to warn them. He's trying to let them know this is going to come because of their refusal and their rejection of God. And he says, this is what's going to happen. And, uh, and so it wasn't a pretty picture that he was painting. And then all those who survived the Babylonian attack were wishing they were dead. That's what, that's what verse 3 is about when it says there, then, the dead shall be chosen rather, then death shall be chosen rather than life by all the residue of those who remain in this evil family. Interesting, when we talk about those Jews who, who become or remain faithful to God, it's a small group. We call them the remnant. Here they're called the residue. It's kind of a different picture. 
you know, because they're they're still, you know, in that mindset of of, of rejecting God. So all those who survived the Babylonian attack were just wishing they were dead, and not among the living as they faced such cruel tactics and crushing experience from their enemies. And again, Jeremiah's giving them the picture of what's to come. The idea is repent. And, and, and you'll be saved from this. But God had already told them they're not going to repent. They're not going to turn. They're not going to believe. But you must tell them anyway. And you know, there's a, an eerie similarity to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ who when speaking in His Sermon on the Mount concerning false teachers would say in Matthew 7:21 and following, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my father in heaven many will say to me in that day Lord Lord have we not prophesied in your name cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness what an eerily similar picture we have here just think for a moment that the Lord is saying Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So there is a uh, condition. It is obedience. But then he says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Now remember, Jesus is speaking, and he says, many are going to say to me in that day, Lord. They're going to call Jesus Lord, as many of us do here. And they're going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now think about this for a moment. Who is going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ at the time of judgment and lie to Him? I don't think anybody's going to lie to Him. You can't lie to Him. So they're going to stand and say, haven't we done these things? Which means that some of these things were actually being done even in the name of Christ by people we've often talked about those that might be on you know international TV you know around the world having all kinds of services healing services of one type or another throwing crutches in one direction throwing wheelchairs in another some people actually get healed God heals it's not the person who's doing it it's God who shows mercy and things would be happening and then all of a sudden they start justifying well evidently God must be on our side and we can do whatever we want however we want and you know kind of fool the people and take the money and run you know whatever and he's going to and they're going to say that to him haven't we done these in your name and then he's going to say I will declare to them I never knew you there was no personal relationship there, there was no heart attitude toward God Christ. There was no intimacy and fellowship with the Lord. And he says, depart from me. Three words that I wouldn't want any of you ever to hear. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. What was Judah practicing? Lawlessness. The law was very clear. There is one God. And Him alone you worship. Simple law. Not so simply kept. 
And it isn't because God delights in judgment. Folks, we've read that time and again in Scripture. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. In the book of Ezekiel. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So it isn't because God delights in the judgment that His people must be so visited. It was the inevitable, inevitable result of their own waywardness. It was their own stubbornness. It was their own way of doing things. It was saying, we're going to do it our way, not your way, God. Theirs was a perpetual backsliding. In other words, they were just backsliding. They were just going to backslide right out of the picture. Yet God gave them time and again opportunity to repent, opportunity to turn, opportunity to come back to Him. Time and time and time and again. I mean, theirs was this, this, this mercy being given. And then at some point in time, God is going to say, that's enough. And He often pleaded with them. But they repented not. And look at verses 4 through 6 of our text in Jeremiah 8. Moreover, you shall say to them. Now again, God is saying to Jeremiah to say to them. Thus saith the Lord, will they fall and not rise? Now listen to the things he says. Will they fall and not rise? Will one turn away and not return? Why has this people slidden back, Jerusalem, in a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I listened and heard, but they, did, they do not speak aright. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned to his own course as the horse rushes into the battle. Now, when most people fall, when most people fall, they get right back up again. And I say most people because some people have a little problem if they fall. And they might, you know, have a bad hip or a bad leg or whatever. And, you know, they kind of say, I'm falling, I can't get up. Right? You've heard that. But most people can get up from a fall. But Jerusalem had fallen and they won't get up. See, the difference is they won't get up. It is a matter of will. Not a matter of ability. But of will. It won't learn from its mistakes. And again, I'm talking about then. And as prophecies go, as we've talked about many times, there is near, near fulfillment of prophecy, which is what this is. There would be a, a, a far fulfillment, which we'll talk about later when we get into the next couple of chapters. But they weren't learning from their mistakes. They were moving away from God and they refused to turn back to Him. Now, I, wanna, I want you all to consider the Christian life for a moment. Consider the Christian life for a moment. Now, when I say this, please don't draw any conclusions by the example that I'm giving you. It is kind of like a, well, it's kind of like this, okay? So don't say that, you know, Pastor Charlie is saying, oh my goodness, we have to work in our Christian walk, you know, and, uh, and, and maybe God will be pleased. No, 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 don't think about that. I'm just saying this is an example. Got it? Huh? Go like this just to make me feel good. All right. So here it is. It's like, it's like climbing up the front part of a slide. You remember you do, did that as a kid? You didn't go up the ladder. You tried to go up the slide. How many of you remember doing that? Come on. All right. All right. All right. Good. You didn't use the ladder or the stairs. You just tried to get up the slide. And as you go up, you can make it to the top if you do what? If you keep moving. Keep moving. If you keep your momentum going. But what happens if you stop moving forward? 
And you've seen this, you know, sometimes you see the kids go up the slide and they just kind of stop and look around. And then all of a sudden they find themselves just sliding back, right? Their momentum was stopped and they didn't keep going. Well, as soon as you stop, you begin to do what? You slide backwards. Nobody's ever slid up. You slide backwards. And it is hard to get the momentum going so you can go forward again. So the key for us is to keep walking, to keep drawing close to God, so that you won't slide backwards and away from Him. James chapter 4, in the New Testament, James chapter 4 verse 7 says, Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. That is one of the most simple and yet profound statements in the New Testament. That sometimes we just don't get, because we're trying to outthink God. And we can't outthink God. He just says simply, draw near to God, and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. In other words, don't ever think that sin is something that is, you know, well, you know, it's kind of, it's just relative, Lord. It wasn't that bad of a sin. You know, any sin. We, we mourn and weep because sin is an affront to God. But you see, what changes everything is the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins that changes the whole picture and when you think that he died for our sins and he died for us because he knew that we could not save ourselves but it just brings to mind he says let your laughter be turned to mourning your joy to gloom humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he'll lift you up brings us to some of the great paradoxes of the Christian faith you know if you go down you'll go up If you humble yourself, God will lift you up. Too many people today, you know, they want to exalt themselves. When you do that, God's going to bring you down. So much better to humble yourself before the Lord and just live a humble, good life. God will lift you up. God will give you everything you need. not hurting. He loves you. There's some heavy lessons, though, when we go back to see how He deals with His people. Because of their disobedience. So we get back to verse 6 now of our text. And Judah, we are told, was like a horse going into battle that is totally unaware of the danger that they're heading into. Now you know when, when warriors who rode horses into battle, the warriors themselves got together and they made their plans and they made their strategies and their war uh, uh, plans. But the horses didn't. Do you understand what I'm saying? The horses were in the stables just eating hay. Drinking water. Neighing a little bit. Unless there was Mr. Ed, and of course, you know, he could talk, but he'd probably be the only one that would be over there with the soldiers. The horses didn't have any mindset about, you know, they just knew that they had to go into battle. The warriors at least had a, had a plan. They knew what they were going to have to face. They knew how they were going to have to face it. But not the horses. So it's an interesting picture that is being drawn here. 
Judah was like a horse going into battle. It's totally unaware of this danger that they're hitting into. They are set on a course for destruction and devastation. They don't even know it. They're going into a battle without anybody riding them. And when it, when it should have been God that was out there riding them, you know, and leading them and taking them, and uh, they refused that, so God says, you're on because you wanted to be. Their refusal to obey God was completely irrational. There's a couple of points you need to follow here. Their refusal to obey God was completely irrational. In fact, think about this. Storks or migratory birds were smarter than the people of Judah. Look at verse 7. Even the stork in the heavens knows her appointed times and the turtle dove. The swift, which is a burden, swallow, observe the time of their coming. But my people do not know the judgment of the Lord. These birds were smarter. I wonder Alfred Hitchcock made that movie a lot of years ago. The birds, they were getting smart, man. They are starting to say, hey, these people are, you know, trying to destroy us. All their technology and all their this and that. Birds, you see, God gave the birds the instinct to know the times and the seasons of their migrations. Why is it that every year, at the same time of season, birds flock to San Juan Capistrano, you know, the swallows? Why is it that at our little wildlife preserve down there on North Loop, you know, birds come every year at the same time? They don't make reservations and say, we'll be back next year. They don't talk. They just know. They just know to come. So God gives the birds the instinct to know the times and the seasons of their migrations, but He gave His people so much more. He gave His people so much more. What did He give us and Judah and the people of Israel? What did He give them? He gave us a spirit within to hear His voice and to understand His law. Made in the image of God, men and women ought to be as obedient to divine instruction as birds are to natural instinct. But his people were oblivious to what season it was. And for them it was judgment day. And judgment day was just around the corner for them. And they didn't see it. Listen to the words of Jesus speaking to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees when they came testing him. In Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. Uh, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came and testing him, asked, what the, uh, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. Okay, you're the Messiah, you say you are. Show us a sign from heaven. And Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning... It will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. And then he says to them, hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky. But you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
And in another gospel, it, you know, it talks about the sign of the, uh, the sign of Jonah. Well, actually, another place in Matthew talks about the sign of uh, the prophet Jonah being that Jesus would be in the grave three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the whale. That would be their sign. And he left them and departed. And we know what happened then. He went into the grave three days and three nights. On the third day he rose again. They missed it. As a people, as a whole, they missed it. But God isn't finished with them as we've seen in Scripture time and again. How he loves his people. He called them by name. He called them his people, his own. He said, I didn't love you because you were greater in number, because you were stronger than any other nation. I loved you because I loved you. And I called you. And I chose you. You know, God, being God, can do that if he wants. But they've also shown how disobedient they can be to a holy God. And so comes this time of correction, this time of discipline this time of chastisement and this is a heavy time by the way history has recorded that for us Judah's refusal to obey the Lord was also caused by deception they weren't just irrational but there was also deception involved so let's look at verses 8 to 12 how can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us remember they're going into the temple every you know Sabbath but the rest of the week they're worshiping uh, uh, idols on top of uh, high places. So they're rationalizing, at least in their own mind, you know, well, hey, we, we're wise. The, Lord, the law of the Lord is with us. In other words, nothing's happened to us yet. And what else? The prophets were telling them what? Peace, everything's okay. As long as you go to temple, you'll be fine. What do we call that last week? The temple was their good luck charm. As long as they went to temple, it was like going, you know, playing safe when you're playing tag. Remember playing tag and you always ran to a safe place? You know, I'm at home base. Temple wasn't home base. Temple was a holy place and they were desecrating it because they were worshiping other gods at other places at other times. Eventually they'd bring that worship into the very temple itself. We'll wait till we get to Ezekiel about that. So anyway... We are wise and the law of the Lord is with us. Look, the false pen of the scribe certainly works falsely. Now this is Jeremiah speaking for God to them. The wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they have? Therefore I will give their wives to others and their fields to those who will inherit them. Because from the least even to the greatest, everyone is given to covetousness. From the prophet even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. So there's all that deception that's going on. For they have healed the hurt of my da- or the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. And if you remember back in chapter uh, chapter six, we dealt with this. As a matter of fact, we're going to see this is almost word for word that same prophecy. The word "slightly" meant superficially. It was like putting a band-aid on the people. And so, well, they they, they heal the hurt of my daughter slightly, saying, "Peace, peace." When there is no peace, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Now that's a problem in our own day and time. 
To think that people have come to that place where they feel, find themselves to be very sophisticated, that they can handle all kinds of adult things and adult language and adult uh, uh, acts and, and whatnot. You know, we call it that adult, but you know, there's a tremendous perversity about it. But, but in any event, what we're saying is that people today don't even blush. There was a time, you know, when, you know, when TV was four channels. We talked about that before. Four channels, you didn't see the things that you see on TV today. But now people don't blush. It's not embarrassing to them anymore. The language people use, not embarrassing anymore. Unfortunately, and some of you who work in the public schools probably go through this all the time. I did when I was in the public schools. Kids, kids using foul language like, like it was just, you know, they were reading a book in class. They were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. In the time of their punishment they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. Just as they boasted that they possessed the temple, so they boasted that they had the divine law. But possessing the scriptures, and if, you know, here's the point. Possessing the scriptures isn't the same as practicing the scriptures. Possessing the scriptures isn't the same as practicing the scriptures. In other words, it isn't enough to know the truths of God. They must be applied to your life. That is where, wisdom, where true wisdom is found. We, we, we find in the scriptures, you know, these under, the, uh, that there is to be an understanding between having wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. All three are important for the, for the believer in God and in Christ. But it has to begin with the wisdom of God. And then there is the knowledge of these things, and then the understanding is the application. You see, even though the Bible is still at the top of the bestseller list, in most, in most lists anyway, its, pop, its popularity isn't keeping Western society from crumbling morally and spiritually. You know, we've talked about these polls before. Okay, the Bible's at the top of the bestseller list. Why are we in the mess we're in in the country today? You take a Gallup poll or any of the other polls, not, not the political ones that are going on now, but, but, but the, the polls that deal with you know, spirituality in the nation today. And they'll say they're 90%, this, this, is, uh, this, this country is 90% Christian. Really? If that's the case, how come we have such a problem with crime? Why do we have such a problem with the things that are going on with people hating people and, and, and doing all kinds of you know, weird things to people? Stealing and you know, robbing and murder and rape and you just on and on and on and on if 90% think about it 90% if that's what it is now maybe the polls have changed maybe that number has gone down considerably possibly but even if it's 70% how can we have a nation 70% Christian and still see what's going on if we just say that we believe in God do we just believe or do we truly believe and live what we, what we say we believe I mean, there appears to be no connection between the things people say that they believe in the way that you act or the way that we act. And it brings us back to the book of James because in James chapter 1, verses 21 through 25, here he says, Therefore lay, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. Lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. 
but be doers of the word. Notice, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you think that all it is is a matter of just hearing the word and not being the doer of the word, then you're deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. Take in a mirror. You know, you just take a mirror and you look at yourselves and, wow, nice, handsome, beautiful. Putting the mirror down, going off and forgetting what you look like. But then notice in verse 24, for he observes himself, goes away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Did you notice it wasn't what he looked like, but what kind of man he was? But he, look, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. By the way, the, the mirror is, is, is a good picture of the, what the Word of God is. The Word of God is a mirror to us. We're to look at it. We're to, you know, we're to look at it, read it, understand it, because this is how we are to be. As Christ. We are to be every day made into the image of Christ. More and more conformed to the image of Christ. Less of us, more of Him. Sometimes we have our ups, we have our downs, but we're still progressing, moving in that direction. This is something that Paul himself taught, taught us. Forgetting what is behind, I press forward toward that high prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, notice, not just looks into it, but continues in it, and is not a forgetful here, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So even back then, in the time of Judah, in the time of their coming judgment, even back then the people were editing the Word of God. They were editing the Word of God. One commentator called it, they were trimming the Word of God with their theological cleverness. That's going on today. People don't like something in the Word of God. They say, well, you know, I don't know if I want to do that, but we'll just kind of trim that a little bit, and we'll just believe what we want to believe that's in the Word of God. Man, you've got to take it from Genesis to Revelation as a whole. This is how God gave it. This is how we are to receive it. And then this is how we are to learn of it, and then this is how we're to do it. So verse 9, back in our text here, implies that even the wise men ignored and rejected it outright. Altogether, if mending the oracles of God, they were obviously denying their divine status. They're going to temple, but they're not believing the word, so they're just not even giving it any, any thought whatsoever. The dire results of this arrogance, which we see in verses 10 through 12, are described almost word for word from that, uh, from that prophecy in, in, in uh, Jeremiah 6, Verses 12 to 15, you'll notice how close it is to what we've just read. And their houses shall be turned over to others, fields and wives together. For I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, saith the Lord. Because from the least of them, even to the greatest of them, everyone is given to covetousness. And from the prophet, even to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have also healed the hurt of my people slightly, in other words, superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed, nor did they know how to blush. Therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, saith the Lord. What have we oftentimes said about things that are repeated in Scripture? One time is, is good enough to know that that's God speaking and saying this is important. Twice, it's doubly important. 
doubly important. Don't miss out on what God is trying to say. But even twice given to the people, they have no inclination to change. They have no inclination to repent and to turn of their way, turn from their ways. So they openly displayed their sin for all to see. This is again what we understand and what we know about their worship of idols on their high places in their ashtoreths and the worship of Baals and Molech and, and all the other gods that they took to themselves while they still said, but we still worship the God of Israel. So they openly displayed their sin for all to see. They were not ashamed of what they were doing. How can that happen? Well, the Lord has placed in us all a consciousness. The Lord has placed in all of us a consciousness. We know what is right and what is wrong. There really is a right and a wrong. And even though there are some philosophers today who would try to tell you, well, you know, there's no, there are no absolutes, I would have to ask them, are you absolutely sure? Are you absolutely sure? I mean, that's a tremendous statement. I mean, you are making an absolute statement when you say there are no absolutes. There are absolutes, aren't there? I mean, last time I checked, 2 plus 2 was, was 4. Last time I checked, if you stop at a, at a red stop sign or, you know, or a stop sign, you're doing well and you won't get hurt. You don't have relative stop signs here. The closest thing would probably be a yield or right-of-way. But you still have to stop if you see someone coming. Because then you will absolutely be sure to get hit. There was nothing relative about that bumper hitting yours, you see. We know what is right and what is wrong. When we do something wrong, the alarm goes off inside of us, warning us. And as believers in Jesus Christ, people who are to be filled with the Holy Spirit, when we do something wrong, what, what hits us immediately? The conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hits us right between the eyes. Because we know we not only sin, but we sin against God. And how wonderfully merciful He is when we stop and we say, You know, Lord, whoa. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we can just get up because He picks us up and He moves us on. But we have made clear that we did something that needed to be brought before God. Even though we know that by the blood of Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago, our sins were forgiven. But it's a consciousness that we have to remember. Now, you can ignore that alarm. And the more that you ignore the alarm of conviction, of, of doing something wrong, the more you ignore the alarm and turn it off, you can do that so much that you are finally insensitive to it, like Judah was. Judah had become insensitive to 
the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, which we're probably living in latter times right now, but that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, but notice verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience or conscience seared with a hot iron. Now you see, after a while of placing your hand on a hot iron, you will kill the nerve endings and you become insensitive to the pain. Now I'm not asking anyone to do that. Don't go and test it out. I mean, there's not, no, no sense in that. Because you remember, we were told when we were kids, don't touch the hot stove. You know, we do it. Park bench, you know, is being painted green with the old park benches. You know, some, some, they don't have park benches, I guess, like they used to. They paint them and they put a sign, wet paint. And we sit on them. And walk away with stripes. But see, that's the nature of man. Your kids growing up, you know, don't do that. <laughs> they do it. Where do our kids learn the word mine? It's built into them, I guess. Mine, mine. Where did they learn that word? They probably heard it from you. We have to be careful, you see. But that's the nature, see. We're born in, with, with a sin nature. And then so, you know, nerve endings are killed. You become insensitive to the pain. What, what, happens, what, what happens when we ignore our sin in our lives? Eventually we become insensitive to it. So this is all of Judah. Jeremiah 8.13, let's go on because of time. He says, I will surely consume them, says the Lord. No grapes shall be on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf, the leaf shall fade, and the things I have given them shall pass away from them. In other words, the land would be devastated by this judgment of God. And by the way, and I think we've mentioned this before, but the prophet Habakkuk also spoke during this time. And I want you to listen to the tremendous faith that he had. And remember, there's a, I don't want to say there's a contrast between Jeremiah and Habakkuk. Of course, it's not. You know, as, as they listen to, to the one God who's speaking to them both, and you'll see, the, you'll see certainly how they complement each other here. But, you know, whereas Jeremiah is being told, listen, everybody, you're going to preach it to and tell them about this stuff. They're not going to listen to you. But there was something, you know, and, and we're going to see a little bit more of the heart of Jeremiah as we go on. and something toward the end of this passage here tonight. But Habakkuk himself, the prophet, uh, when he, uh, he had a tremendous faith in the Lord. He had a tremendous faith that God was going to do some great things, even in the midst of this devastation that was coming. So listen to the tremendous faith that Habakkuk had in God as he too saw this devastation coming upon the land and his people. Look at Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. Again, he says, uh, well, this is another prophet, but he says, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the, from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Notice verse 18, yet... Yet, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet. And He will make me walk on my high hills. In other words, no matter what happens in 
his life, Habakkuk was going to trust in the Lord. Now, Jeremiah is going to trust in the Lord too. But he's going to have some struggles with the Lord a couple of times. We'll see those later. But Habakkuk just says, I'm just going to trust the Lord. As a matter of fact, Job, in the book of Job, I have to say Job, because I don't want you to think that there's a book in the Bible called Job, if you don't hear the B at the end. But the book of Job, in Job 13, verse 15, this is how he says it. And it's just that first phrase. He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. But he says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Now, that's a tremendous amount of faith it takes to say that. Though the Lord destroy this flesh, I will trust him. I will trust him. So how did the people respond to this particular thing that is being given to them and presented to them? How do they respond? Instead of turning to the Lord and trusting Him, they fled to their walled cities. They fled to the fortified cities. Notice Jeremiah 8.14. Why do we sit still? Now Jeremiah is, is recording the things that they're saying. Why do we sit still? Assemble yourselves. And let us enter the fortified cities. And let us be silent there. Some people think that maybe Jeremiah was also you know, encouraging them to do this. I'm not quite sure that that's what it is, but nonetheless. He said, uh, they say, let us enter the fortified cities and let us be silent there, for the Lord our God has put us to silence and given us water of gall to drink, because we have sinned against the Lord. There is a sense in this passage that the people were fleeing to their fortified cities, knowing that God had doomed them to perish. And to perish there. And they go on in verse 15 and 16. We looked for peace, but no good came. And for time of health, and there was trouble. The snorting of the horses was heard from Dan. The whole land trembled at the sound of the neighing of his strong ones. For they have come and devoured the land and all that is in it, the city and those who dwell in it. Now it seems that what the false prophets promised to all these people was not going to come to pass. And so in verse 17 it says, For behold, I will send serpents among you, vipers which cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, saith the Lord. The Babylonians couldn't be charmed like a snake was charmed. Couldn't charm those guys. Judah wouldn't be able to stop the judgment, and it couldn't be stopped by hiding. No matter where they went, this massive army was going to come and sweep down into all of the land and take everything that was in front of it. Because you see, sin will find you out. Sin will find you out. Now understand this. Understand this statement. Because we, you know, we can go back to, to Moses when he's speaking to those nations uh, or to those tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan. If they didn't respond when, when those who were uh, on, on, on the one side of Jordan uh, needed help, if they didn't come over and respond that their sin would find them out. But this is what this phrase means. And uh, I'm not getting it from the Reverend Wright, okay, so understand this. But what the phrase really means is, there will come a time when the chickens will come home to roost. There will come a time when the chickens will come home to roost. Now here's the understanding by Paul, and he says it a lot better. 
Paul in Galatians 6 verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Sin will find, your sin will find you out. That's the understanding. Where you have sinned against God in the way that you have, God's not mocked. What you have sown, you will reap. It will come back to you. That's what that phrase means. The people seeing the Babylonians coming were wondering where the Lord was. And the Lord explained to them that they had brought this judgment on themselves. Verses 18 and 19. I would comfort myself in sorrow. My heart has fainted me. Listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. You see, this is Jeremiah now. Here's the heart of Jeremiah. And he says, listen, the voice, the cry of the daughter of my people from a far country. Is not the Lord in Zion? Is not her king in her? Why have they provoked me to anger with their carved images, with foreign idols? The people, you see, had provoked him to abandon them. They had disobeyed. They were unfaithful to the covenant they had made with the Lord. Their situation was hopeless, at least in this particular case. Nobody would come and save them, in other words. And the next verse was the proverb that they quoted. Listen to it carefully. It is, one of the, it is one of the gravest verses in the scriptures. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. I've, I, I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. Because the story is told that a big storm, a big storm was on the horizon. And the police cars went through the small farming community to warn the citizens to head for high ground. Farmer Bill heard the warning, but decided that he was just going to stay put and trust God. When the rain began to fall and the water began to rise, the firemen came by in a boat, offering to evacuate Farmer Bill, but he said, no, I'm going to stay put and trust God. Finally, as Bill had to climb out onto his roof to get away from the raging flood, a helicopter came by offering assistance, but Farmer Bill stayed put. When Bill got to heaven, he was a bit ticked off at God. He said to God, How come you didn't rescue me from the flood when I trusted you? And God gently replied, Bill, I sent you a police car, a rescue boat, and a helicopter. What more did you expect? When the Lord, you see, when the Lord gives you an opportunity to turn around, take it. Now the children of Judah had missed their God-given opportunity. Time and again, we've seen it from the beginning of Jeremiah. We saw it in the book of Isaiah when we studied that book. Time and again, God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to, you know, to rescue them, essentially. Rescue them. They would not take it. They missed their God-given opportunity and it would never come again, at least to this generation. And God was patient with them. Because we're not talking about ten of, tens of years or... You know, even hunt. I mean, we're talking a lot of years. 
that God was patient with his people. He sent them prophet after prophet, warning them to repent. He sent them, he sent them droughts and other judgments to get their attention, but they refused to listen and see this was from God. And they even refused to learn from the object lessons that the Lord had given them through the, the captivity of the northern kingdom in, of, of, of Israel when they were in, in, in Assyria. They should have taken notice and said, you know, we better, we better take God seriously. We better take God's word seriously and, and, and repent and, and do the things that honor God. But they didn't do that. And really the statement that we need to say today is that today, right now, today, is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. For those of you who don't know Jesus Christ personally, don't put it off. Today is the day of salvation. There's a, there's a verse of scripture in Isaiah that Paul takes and makes a grand statement to people. The Isaiah passage is Isaiah 49 verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. I will preserve you and give you as a covenant to the people to restore the earth, to cause them to inherit the desolate heritages. From this, from this passage, Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And he says in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 1 and 2, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, and this is, these are Paul's words based upon this scripture. Behold, he says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not next year. How many of us know if we have another year? How many of us know if we have another month? Or even another day? We don't know, do we? And he says, now is the accepted time. Now, the accepted time is simply the season of grace. Consider that during the time of Noah, God said this, now, he didn't say it directly to Noah. He may have, but he didn't. Here in, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, he doesn't say it directly to Noah. But this is what the Lord said. He said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And it is believed by most commentators who study this passage, along with the, the life of Noah and the ministry of Noah, that Noah preached for 120 years. He preached... The righteous God, creator of the heaven and earth, who made all things. And he preached that God was going to bring judgment. They had 120 years to heed the words that were being preached. At the end of that 120 years, when the flood came, only eight people were saved. And that, it was just Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. We today are living in the age of God's grace. But the day of his judgment is quickly coming upon a Christ-rejecting world. 
So today is the day of salvation. Today. Not tomorrow. Something that we ought not to put off. Well, let's come back to Jeremiah's heart before we close here. Let's come back to Jeremiah's heart in verse 20 for just a moment. He never viewed his people's sufferings without identifying with them passionately. Because you see, when he says what he says there, in verse 20, he in essence includes himself. The harvest has passed, the summer has ended. He could have said, and they're not saved. <laughs> but he says, and we're not saved. Paul had a tremendous love for Israel and his people. That in the book of Romans, for three chapters, 9 through 11, he spoke of how much he loved his people and prayed for Israel to be saved because they had rejected Christ. So Jeremiah never viewed his people's sufferings without identifying with them. In verse 20, he either voiced the anguished cry of the people, or he may have just recorded it, but either way, consider what he was saying. The summer has passed, or the harvest has passed, I should say. The summer has ended, and we are not saved. You know what that phrase is saying? There's a double failure here. A double failure is taking place. Because you see, the wheat harvest had ended without any reaping. The time had arrived for the gathering of the summer fruits. But the summer was ended, and there was no fruit. So this was a double failure. The first season lasted from April to June. The latter harvest came in late September and October. And when both of those failed, the people faced a crisis. And so it is believed that this particular statement in verse 20 was actually a proverb that was say, you know, if there was ever a time that there was a failure of the harvest and a failure of the, of the fruit season... And they would say, we're not saved. We've had a devastation in our crops. We've had a devastation. How are we going to feed and, 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 and be fed? So the words Jeremiah used may have been this proverb of the time to express frustration over any kind of famine. But he certainly used it with greater intensity because of the judgment that was coming. And then to close here in verses 21 and 22, For the hurt of the daughter of my people, I am hurt. Again, Jeremiah does not separate himself from his people. He, 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 he hurts because they're not listening to God. I am mourning, he says. Astonishment has taken hold of me. And then he says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is there no recovery for the health of the daughter of my people? Jeremiah identified with the people feeling deep empathy for, the, for them. He saw them cr- crushed, bruised, black and blue, and the sight ripped his heart. Sensing the pain of their injuries, he was engulfed with their grief. His heart ached for them. He longed for a medicine. He longed for a balm in Gilead. And a physician who could heal the people. When he asked, is there no balm in Gilead? He already knew the answer. He knew the answer for them at that moment and at that time. He knew that the Lord was the only physician who could heal the wounds of the people. But he also knew that their sins had prevented the Lord from healing them. 
The people's sickness was not healed because they worshipped false gods and because they followed the standards and beliefs of false teachers. Is there a bomb in Gilead? Here are the words of an old hymn. Some of you may know it. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounded whole. There is a bomb in Gilead to heal the sin-sick soul. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain. But then the Holy Spirit revives my soul again. There is a bomb in Gilead. Gilead was known for a bomb that was made there from the resin of the storax tree. And it was used for the eyes and other parts of the body to heal. But there is such a bomb far beyond the bomb of Gilead. For us, there is that bomb. For us, there is that hope. It is the Spirit of God that He has given to us. The anointing of the Holy Spirit, the the word anointing itself speaks of that outpouring of an oil that was to come upon their heads and come all over their body and cover them. It was an oil that had healing properties. And the, the application of it was not just to heal the body, but it was, in fact, the symbol of God's desire to heal the soul. And so, yes, it is the anointing that God gives through Jesus Christ, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the outpouring of His Spirit upon us, but then it is Jesus Himself. Because Jesus, in Luke 19, verse 10, they're always giving my scriptures away. <laughs> but in Luke 19, verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. There is a bomb in Gilead. And his name is Jesus. And how we need to know him. And to receive his love and to give him love. To receive his forgiveness and his cleansing and his healing and to give him praise, to give him glory, to give him honor. There is a balm in Gilead. Let's pray.